everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Bavarian Podcast Works. This is Chuck Smith, and I'm here to bring you the weekend warm-up BFW's weekly show where we hit on all of the latest and greatest news of the week. And what a week it was. I mean, if you are a Bayern Munich fan, you have to be ecstatic about what you saw against the team in the Champions League against PSG. It was just a terrific effort, a really dominant effort against a very good star-studded team. Anytime you can go through and you can shut down Kylian Mbappe and Lionel Messi over the course of a Champions League tie, it's impressive. I don't care who you are, what you think. That is a very impressive feat. Byron was really, really good in both matches against PSG in terms of being able to stifle their very potent and powerful offense and also to keep them off the board. And we will talk a lot about that match, of course, during this show. But if you had a chance, if or if you haven't had a chance, check out our post-game show, which Samron hosted. She did a really good job of breaking that down and giving you some good takes on what she saw from the match. And, uh, of course, I'll give you my own. But the way we're going to start this show out is with a preview of the upcoming match between Bayern Munich and FC Augsburg. And you might say, well, why aren't you just having a... Uh, preview show separately. Well, we are very respectful of your time. And we know that with the condensed schedule, whenever there is a quote unquote English week, and we have a lot of activity with uh, post game shows and our flagship and weekend warm up, we want to be respectful of your time and not really tie you down uh, too much. So we wanted to combine the preview with the weekend warm up this week. And like we do for every preview show, we'll take a look at where each team is in the standings and how they're doing. So let's get right to that and get this started. Uh, Bayern Munich versus Augsburg, of course, will be a a very interesting match, and mostly because of how Bayern Munich will approach this. Will Julian Nagelsmann rest his starters? Will he seek to get some of his deeper bench players more time? Will Bayern Munich be focused enough on the task at hand to put FC Augsburg away, or will they let Augsburg hang around and have a little bit of a letdown? The biggest key for me is that Bayern Munich does not look past FC Augsburg, but as we have seen in the past, any time Bayern Munich is in this situation, it's always very tricky. Oftentimes, they will come in and take care of business, but there have been occasions where Bayern maybe be smelling itself a little too much and maybe feeling how good it is played and could potentially look past, but we'll get into that. As far as where the teams stack up in the table, Bayern Munich is currently tied at the top of the table. Of course, they they hold the tiebreaker over Borussia Dortmund, but through 28, 23 match days, 28 might be wishful thinking because I have not had enough coffee this morning, <laughs> 23 match days, we have Bayern Munich with 14 wins, seven draws, and two losses for 49 points. They have 66 goals in the league and 22 against. That is a pretty good goal differential, if I say so myself. Over the course of the last five league matches, Bayern Munich has four wins and one loss. Of course, the Bavarians had a 2-1 victory over VFB Stuttgart last week. And as you can tell, that lack of coffee and the lack of the coffee kicking in is pushing me all over the place right now. (laughs) So, So bear with me as I gather myself and try and work through this. For Augsburg, they are having what I would call an okay season. They're currently in 13th place, which might not sound great, but they're right in the mix and could easily bump up to as high as ninth or 10th with a couple of breaks. They have 
eight wins, three draws, and 12 losses. They have scored 28 goals and allowed 39. They, of course, have 27 points. That knots them with FC Cone. Uh, Cone has the edge in the tiebreaker of goal differential. So uh, Augsburg has been up and down through their last five games. It indicates as much. They have three wins and two losses. Last week, they did have a nice 2-1 victory over Werder Bremen, which I know will make one particular member of the BFW community extremely happy, uh, or at least it did make him very happy. Uh, but Augsburg is a very interesting side because they kind of fall into this mix of teams that's not in the, the lowest rung of bottom dwellers in at risk of relegation, but they're also nowhere near contention for a top six position Uh, and I think they're living in a world which many of the Bundesliga teams are finding themselves in at this point where they're good enough to stay out of uh, the Bundesliga too but they are not good enough to really compete in the Bundesliga at this point they do have some talent on their squad and I think over the years one of the things that Augsburg has done and that they've done well is really maximize what they've gotten out of their roster of course, you could look at this and you you could see names like Daniel Caliguri or Julian Baumgartlinger, and you can say, well, they, yeah, they, they're nice players, uh, but they're old. And and you would be right. <laughs> I mean, those are those are two players for them who still get some time and have been uh solid at different points during this season. But yes, they are on the veteran end of the team, and Augsburg is transitioning toward a younger roster one of those younger players on the roster of course is former Bayern Munich midfielder Nicholas Dorsch who had himself a bit of a renaissance last season maybe has come back down the earth a little bit but has shown that he is a very capable first team player in the Bundesliga and while that might not mean he would be a success or be able to maintain a position at Bayern Munich it doesn't mean that he can't be a very quality player in the league itself so Dorsch, I think, is probably one of those players that uh, many Bayern Munich fans will keep an eye on in this one. Another one could be a a guy who, wow, it just seems like not that long ago that he was considered one of the top young German midfielders. But Arnmeier has has really been up and down. And it's it's kind of crazy to think about where he was and what what was really considered to be a very high ceiling for him. He just hasn't reached that. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of people had high hopes for him. Uh, of course, when he was at Hertha Berlin, uh, that was that was when he started to gain some notoriety. Uh, he had also spent uh, a loan spelled Armenia at Armenia Bielefeld. But at FC Augsburg, he is definitely seeking to get back on that trajectory of where people thought he would end up. Uh, it, it's It's a very, very interesting case with him. Uh, I look at him as a guy who a couple of years back, I think we all thought had the, at least had the potential to be one of these players that might be able to develop into maybe not a starter for Germany, but definitely someone that would be under consideration for the squad. And it just hasn't happened. Maybe it was a case of too much too soon. Maybe he's just struggling with the idea of being a professional that's counted upon to produce and to be at a high level at all times. He's gotten a lot of playing time this year. He's played in 21 matches. He's had three goals. 
but it's it's not been an easy ride. I mean, he does get a significant amount of playing time at Augsburg. He is definitely a player who I think that they're counting on to to really be one of their foundational pieces. He's still young. He's got still has a decent ceiling, at least higher than a lot of players that Augsburg has. And I think if if they could find a way to get something out of him and to coax him into at least becoming some somewhat of that player many thought he could be, they could be in a in a very good position with Meyer and Dorsch to at least have a very competitive midfield. Now, Dorsch himself has had a injury plague season. He missed a lot of time earlier uh, in the season with a foot injury. I believe it was a metatarsal fracture. Uh, and then, you know, as it takes, it takes time. I mean, he really didn't play in the Hinrunda, came back in January and it started to see his minutes ramp up. But if you're a Bayern Munich fan and you want to look at something from this match, you might want to keep an eye on the midfield of Augsburg and see how Arnmeyer and Nicholas Storch stack up against whoever Bayern Munich puts out there. And we'll have to come up with a, a predicted lineup for Bayern Munich, which of course is always a tough task, but Bayern Munich fans, keep an eye on Dorsch, keep an eye on Meyer, see how they stack up. These are two players that have been highly regarded in the past, and they're both working their way back to trying to get to where many people thought they would be in terms of uh, the hierarchy of the league's midfielders. And I think for Dorsch, it's just a matter of continuing to work back to 100% from that injury. And for Meyer, it, it might be something that has to do with confidence and believing in himself and, and trying to draw the best out of what he can be as a player. And I, you know, I think he still has believers, particularly at Augsburg, but it definitely will not be uh, an easy road for him if there's any self doubt. So those are the players I would look at at Augsburg. As for Bayern Munich, uh, this is very interesting for a number of reasons because Julian Nagelsmann is going to have to come up with a plan for this match. Of course, when you come off a huge victory like Byron just had against PSG, the natural inclination is to try and rest some of those players. And I do think that Nagelsmann is going to do that. The only risk that he will face with that is breaking up the continuity that he might have within that locker room, within the squad. And and for Nagelsmann, really, he he juggles so many different formations and using players in so many different spots. I think it's a situation where Against Augsburg, he can take a couple of risks. And yeah, I know that Byron is still in the Bundesliga title race. But at some point, I think he does have to start to to look long term at this Rook Ronda and have to start to plan out how he's going to manage playing time for some of his veteran players like Thomas Muller or even Chupo, who Chupo has been very, very good. Uh, but at the same time, he also is, is, you know, he's getting a little long in the tooth. <laughs> so he's going to have to have his time managed as well. So let's take a look at how we think Bayern Munich might potentially uh, line up for this one. And to me, I think it's it's a, it's definitely going to be a situation where Nagelsmann does use some of his substitutes. So let's just start with the obvious one. We'll stick with Jan Sommer. In between the sticks, he will play goalkeeper. I think we're going to see a back three. I think Nagelsmann is really starting to favor this. I think that he uh, likes what he sees when the team plays in this formation. And it's pretty hard to argue against it. Uh, Nagelsmann has done a really good job of, of getting the players to buy into what he wants. And they have been performing exceptionally well while using a back three. And I see no reason to back away from that now. So 
At center back, I think we will see Dio Upamakano. I think we'll see Matthijs Delict, and I think we'll see Benjamin Pavar because I do think that Novelsman wants to see what that looks like moving forward with those three players. He's gotten a good sample size already, but I think this is a situation where Novelsman is recognizing that using the three center backs uh, in tandem there, it's going to be something that not only has worked, but it's something that's going to create problems for the opposition. And I think he likes what it looks like. I think he likes how they perform together. And I think he's going to want to see a a much larger sample size of what that could look like as Bayern Munich prepares for this, what really should be torturous stretch run in the season. Uh, In the midfield, it could get a little interesting because obviously you have the two starters of Yashua Kimmich and Leon Goretzka. I think that this is a spot where Goretzka might take a seat and we could see Ryan Gravenberg. Gravenberg has uh, went from getting a, not a decent amount of field time, but at least subbing in on a regular basis to kind of falling off the map again. I think this is a spot where Gravenberg will come in and he'll play a central midfield spot next to Joshua Kimmich. We could see Goretzka as a sub. We could see Daly Blind actually sub in there as well. Uh, either in the defense or with, uh, or as a defensive midfielder if needed. But I think Gravenberg gets the nod. I think resting Gretzka is smart given his injury history and the fact that he just has a proclivity to pick up these minor knocks that seem to to bother him. He's playing so well, it's tough to take him out of the lineup right now, but I think it's just a situation where you want to get him some extra rest. We'll have to have wingbacks in this formation. So I'm assuming that we're going to see Alfonso Davies at the left wing back spot. I don't think there's any reason for Nagelsmann to sub him out at this point. Davies is building on something. He's had a, he's really strung together some good performances of late. So I think we'll see more of him at the right wing back spot. It's, it does, it gets a little complicated at this point. You have Jao Cancelo who has uh, really, been up and down. He started out great, had a couple of down performances in my mind. Uh, he's available. You have Josip Stanisic, who just played a terrific game at center back against PSG. And you also have Nusara Mizrali, who I'm not really sure at this point how comfortable Nagelsmann is uh, with using him at this stage. I mean, I could also say you have Kingsley Coman available there. You have Serge Gnabry available there. You also have Bunasar as well, although Sar, I would say, is probably... The lowest on the totem pole at this point to get some time there. As far as who will start this match, I think Stanisic will take a seat, even though he's really played well. I think it's just time to rotate a little bit. And to me, it comes down to this. Will Nagelsmann roll out Serge Gnabry or will he use Joe Cancelo? Uh, The feeling here right now is, you know, Gnabry coming in and getting a goal there. Against PSG late, I mean, that really iced the game and and really put it out of reach, uh, at least for that particular match. I mean, Byron scoring first pretty much guaranteed that they were going to move on given the way the defense was playing. Uh, But either way, I think Gnabry has a a strong case to get some time. We all know, though, that he does not really want to play that wing back role. So at right wing back, I'm going to say this will be a Jao Cancelo match that he will get the start. If he does not get the start in this match, however, I think it's time to to really start to look at what his role might be in the second half of the season here. Uh, and we will touch on him in just a bit as well as we have a, a segment dedicated to what is going on with him and what his future outlook might look like uh, based on some recent reports. But we'll give him the start this week. 
Across the attack, uh, it really comes down to this. You have those top three spots, two attacking midfielders in my mind and a striker. Some people flip-flop it and say two strikers, but either way, I, I don't see it as that. I think Jamal Musiala definitely will play. I think Eric Maxim Chupomoting will start again. Uh, I do think he'll be subbed out relatively early, and we'll see a lot of uh, Mat- Matisse tell. That last attacking midfield spot is where it gets interesting. I think Thomas Muller is going to take a seat. Uh, I think it's it's a good time to rest him. Uh, it's a good opponent to rest him against. And I think we're going to see Leroy Sané uh, occupy that spot. I think Sané is battling something right now. He has not looked like himself. He's shown some flashes of his ability, but he definitely uh, it look, doesn't look as confident as he, as he did earlier in the season. So I think Nagelsmann is going to want to look to get him on track. The one name that I had trouble figuring out where he would fit in is Sadio Mane. Where does this guy play now if Nagelsmann uses a back three? And, and I, I honestly am, am, am really, really struggling to, to find him a role at this point. And it's not because he's not a talented player or anything. I just don't know how this is going to shake out. So with Sadio Mane and Serge Gnabry both left out of my starting lineup, I'm assuming that they would both get a lot of playing time regardless. It might be a great spot for Nagelsmann to give Mane a start. I just don't know where he would do it. Would he sub him in or would he start him over Chupo at striker? Would he not use Sané and use Mane as an attacking midfielder? Or would he shift to a back four, which is also a possibility? Either way, I'm, I'm going to go with the back three for this. I'm going to say that Mane and Gnabry uh, will come off the bench. I think Matisse Tell will also get some time. But the biggest, I think, insertions uh, really involve Ryan Gravenberg and uh, Leroy Sané at this point, Jao Cancelo. Those are the three who I think will enter into the lineup and and do some other uh, – provide a, at least give the coaching staff a look at them as to, to what their status is and what they're looking like. Benjamin Pavar coming back into the starting lineup is not really a surprise. He was suspended against PSG and, and – should get some time this weekend. As far as the final prediction goes, I do expect Bayern to have a little bit of a hangover. It wouldn't be uncommon. I still think they'll take care of business and win 3-0. It won't always be pretty. It won't always uh, look great. But Bayern Munich is the better team. They have much better talent and depth. Uh, For as talented as some of the Augsburg players are, I think Bayern will just overwhelm them eventually. They just might have to shake off the cobwebs first. So we're going to go Bayern with a 3-0 victory over FC Augsburg this weekend. <sighs> now that we've gotten that preview out of the way, let us I just want to give you some quick thoughts on that PSG match because I came away from watching that like really, really excited because this was not an easy match by any means. Uh, PSG has a lot of talent. They're a proud team. And you can knock them for a lot of things. Do they have the same type of heart as a team like Bayern Munich? I don't think so. Um, To me, PSG is a group of mercenaries that were really glued together, hoping that they could use the greatness that they had collected among those individual players and just mold into what could be a championship-level team in Europe. And I think what we learned about them is while they have great individual talent, it has not gelled or meshed in the way that you would hope it would if you were a PSG fan. And I don't knock the coach for that. I don't knock Christophe Galtier because I don't think that it's necessarily his problem. I think you have these huge egos. 
you have players that have won the at the highest levels. How many World Cups have players on that team won? How many Champions League titles have some of those players won on that team? But trying to bring that all together, the chemistry there doesn't always work. And that, to me, was the biggest difference between Bayern Munich and PSG. You could argue that Julian Nagelsmann totally outcoached Galtier. And I wouldn't say you were wrong about that. I think Nagelsmann did a phenomenal job. But the way Bayern Munich functioned as a unit, the way that they covered for each other and played together was a massive difference between the two teams. You could look at individual moments across either game of this tie, but when Matthijs de Ligt made that goal line clearance, laid out, was in a good enough position to recognize uh, what, what was happening in the play and to put himself in that spot to be able to make that play, that was, to me the absolute turning point for everything. And that's where Bayern delivered the dagger. You could argue that the goal, the first the opening goal was important, and it sure was. I mean, it was a great goal. I mean, Thomas Muller and Leon Goretzka pressing and really creating a turnover from Marco Verratti, who you just don't see him make mistakes like that. Either way, it, Goretzka was able to win that or... Muller was able to win that, slide the ball to Goretzka, who found Chupo Moting for the easy goal. That was a great moment. But the Licks goal line clearance, that was the one for me. That did it. And from that moment, there was never a doubt on that Bayern Munich side that they were going to win that match. And not just win it, but do so convincingly. And they did just that. I thought Nagelsmann had a great game plan. I think using Stanisic was a genius move. Uh, He's steady. He was confident and sure he had some iffy moments in the beginning of the match, but once he settled in and got his footing, he was really, really good. And that's what we want to see out of Stanisic. I mean, this was a kid who came in kind of out of nowhere a couple of seasons back. We didn't know who he was. We just knew he was kind of a versatile defender who, who could play a couple of different spots, but there was really no outlook for what he could be. Well, little did we know that he was the type of player that you could use in a number of different positions at a high level in a Champions League match and that he would be so successful. Uh, Stanisic, to me, really was a, a standout in that match because he has really this season struggled with injuries. He has not been used a lot, and I'm sure he was frustrated. But when given the opportunity, he has risen his level of play to the point where it's almost like, how do you take this kid out of the lineup after he has performed like that? And I think I need no name and Phil were discussing this on our Slack channel. And I mean, the consensus is if he had any one, um, you know, standout trait, whether he was blazing, he had blazing speed, not just good speed. Like he has, he has good speed, but he doesn't have Davies level speed. He doesn't have Matthijs Delict's level of strength. He doesn't have, you know, you could well, you could point out a million things he doesn't have. But what he does have is the ability to be pretty good at everything. He's not weak. He's strong. He's not blazing fast, but he's quick. He is positionally very smart. He sees the field very well. He's technically very gifted. He does everything good. <laughs> Whether he does anything great or not, I guess, remains to be seen. But he is an excellent piece to this puzzle that Nagelsmann has at Bayern Munich. And the fact that he can deploy him at a number of different positions and be confident that he will perform at a high level at each one, that's such a great thing for a coach to have. 
you know, I could go on and on and on. And I could talk about Dio Upamakano and how well he played because he did. He was great as well. You could talk about the continued improvement of Davies. I mean, these are all great things. And of course, you had Coman really functioning in that hybrid wingback role. All of those guys, if you want to talk about them as a defensive unit, it's weird to say that about Coman. But for all intents and purposes, he was a wingback. To me, I thought they did exceptionally well. They had a very tough challenge and they handled it great. Now, you could shift and you could talk about, well, the midfield was very good also. They were. I thought Kimmich and Goretzka were outstanding. Uh, And I know Goretzka takes a ton of heat. I mean, this guy gets hammered on social media like no other. And sometimes I I read the comments and I just don't get it. And I don't want to knock anybody for their opinions. Like, listen, people react and see whatever they want to see. Sometimes they're right. Sometimes they're wrong. I do think Goretzka has become kind of the the target for a lot of people because of maybe some of the beliefs he has, maybe some of the ways he shows those beliefs. And, and, and I think he took a significant amount of heat for what Germany did at the World Cup in terms of, you know, they made the statement and then went out and underperformed. It's always a situation where if you make a, a big public statement like that and you're going to throw that out there, the expectation is you're going to back it up, which Germany didn't do. So whenever you'd fail to back it up, you increase the size of that target. And I do think Goretzka took is taking a significant amount of heat for that. But regardless of any of that, I thought he was terrific on the field. The way he was bullying Messi and, and establishing, just like Benjamin Pavard did in the first game, we're not going to let you run roughshod on us. We're not going to bow down to you because you might be the GOAT. The same way that Pavar was bullying Neymar, Goretzka was establishing the same type of physical presence with Messi and Mbappe as well. So I think that the midfield did exactly what they needed to do. I thought they took care of the ball. I thought they were very good defensively and they made very smart contributions to the offense. uh, As we saw with Goretzka helping Muller press and creating that turnover for the game's first goal. Excellent performance by the midfield. The attack was up and down. There were some good moments, some not great moments. Coman, from an attacking standpoint, I thought was a little subpar compared to what he's what he how he's performed recently. But I didn't think he was bad. I didn't come away from the game thinking Coman was bad. I just thought he wasn't as dangerous as normal. Uh, I thought that Musiala was good, not great. I thought Muller was very good. I thought Chupo was was in consistently in good positions. He, they just had trouble getting him the ball. So while they were up and down and a little bit choppy, I thought the attack did exactly what they needed to do. Byron put everything together, all of those facets of the game, they came together. And even summer when he had a gaff here or there, someone was there to pick him up. And that is ultimately what I think all Byron fans wanted to see. How would this team react during breakdowns how would they cover for each other and they did so masterfully it was a brilliant brilliant effort Bayern Munich fans have to be really excited because I think there was it's natural to have a little doubt about how this team was going to perform on a big stage against a very good team now PSG I thought underperformed but did they underperform because they're a collection of individuals with absolutely nothing holding them together as a team Or did Byron just completely take them out of their game? And I think it was a little bit of both. I think Byron did an excellent, excellent job in just limiting PSG offensively and then just, you know, doing enough offensively to get the job done. So Byron Munich, big kudos to them. I think Nagelsmann is 
absolutely doing a, a tremendous job. You have to, as I've said a million times, you have to let the coach run his system. You have to let him do things the way he wants to do them. And I think Byron is benefiting from that now, using a back three, using Stanisic as a starter, doing these kind of oddball things that that probably alienate a lot of Byron fans and make them question what the coach is doing. Listen, he's going to be right sometimes. He's going to be wrong sometimes. But the important thing is he has to do it his way. He has to succeed or fail his way for us to really know what he's all about. And he has not been perfect, but he has done a, a really good job this year. I think he has struggled at times with how to use all of the talent on his roster, who his best 11 is. I think he's had a lot of trouble identifying that. But now it appears that he's starting to target those 11 starters on a game-by-game basis and figure out which 11 will be best for this particular matchup. And the fact that he has seemingly come around once again, as it, as it as most Byron coaches do who end up taking Thomas Muller out of the, the starting 11, it seems like Nagelsmann has now realized that Muller doesn't have, in some ways like Stanisic, he doesn't have all of these measurables that are going to make him leap off the roster sheet good speed not great he's not weak but despite his life appearance he's not weak but he's also not physically dominant he's not the most technical player in terms of what he can do with the ball but his brain accounts for so much and his leadership accounts for so much and the way he moves on the field creates space for other players it all when you put it all together it just does so much for the team it's very tough to take him out And I think Nagelsmann has accepted that, but now it does become more difficult. And here's why. After all of that great stuff that Byron did, they still have this outstanding issue is what the hell do you do with Sadio Mane, Leroy Sané, and Serge Gnabry at this point? Gnabry came in, had a goal. I thought that was a good appearance for him. He doesn't want to play a wingback spot. So that kind of limits where he can go if Nagelsmann continues to use a back three. Sané hasn't looked like himself. It seems like he's struggling with confidence. And listen, I'm making an assumption about that, but I can say as someone who's observed him, he's an exceptional talent. When he's confident, that man is very difficult to stop. But he does have a tendency in my mind, at least this is the way his body language looks. It's the way he appears with his decisions on the field. If he loses confidence, it does affect him in a, in a big way. And I think that's what he's battling with right now. I'd love to sit down with him and ask him that and, and ask him, like, are you going through something right now where you're doubting your movements on the field, where you're doubting your ability to perform? Because that's what it looks like. Uh, you know, and earlier in his tenure at Bayern Munich, you could maybe question Leroy Sané and, and if he was invested in being a team player. You cannot question that now. He there were assumptions that he was a diva. I don't think you can really question that now either. He has shown that he is willing to get back and defend, that he will do the selfless things for the team that, that are required. All of that with him, I, I don't think that's a question anymore. Right now, I just think he's battling something inside himself. And as for Sadio Mane, he was the huge transfer of the summer. But if Nagelsmann's using this back three and you're really only going to have three attackers... Who does he start over? Chupo? Maybe. Thomas Muller? Maybe, but we all know the ramifications of that. Musiala? Absolutely not. So I don't know what happens. And this is why when I look at Nagelsmann, and I've said this for a very long time, it's not as much 
a question about his tactics or his strategy or using a back three or whatever. It's how do you manage this roster and can you do it effectively without burning yourself out? And I think that more than anything, that's where he's going to struggle. How do you look at Sadio Mane and you say, Sadio, you're a great player, but you might not be in our best 11 right now for at least the best 11 for, for how you want the team to function. Um, talent wise, of course, he's in the best 11. I don't know. And and those are questions that are going to have to be answered in the coming weeks. But if you're Mane or if you're Sané or Gnabry, you're on the outside looking in at the team's starting 11 at this point. How does that all shift? Of course, injuries could affect things. Drops in form could affect things. If Nagelsmann decides a back four might be better, it certainly affects how those three players are used. Uh, but either way, right now, it is a potential problem for Nagelsmann because he's not going to just have to continue to work on this on a game-by-game basis, but he's going to have to, and this has been a struggle for him, communicate to these players why they're not starting, where they're lacking, or what the plan is. He has not always been the best, at least according to some reports that have been out there, at working within the the player-coach relationship and, and detailing what's going on to the players, how they're what the plan is for them, how they're going to be used and all of that. He's going to have to improve that because those are three very high profile players, three very big ego players. And those are all three players who really, I'm sure, believe they should be in the starting 11 every game. So while there's a lot to celebrate, and there certainly is, that's definitely a situation uh, as we look forward to the stretch run of the Bundesliga, the DFB Pokal, and the Champions League, that Nagelsmann's really going to have to monitor and and take care of because these players um, all have expectations, and the coach is going to have to deal with those. Interestingly, uh Leroy Sané and Serge Gnabry are also part of the, the one of the other big topics of the week, and it was the latest details on the contract situations of four particular players, Alfonso Davies, Luca Hernandez, Leroy Sané, and Serge Gnabry. And we'll, we'll kind of roll through this one quickly, but uh, we'll start with Sané and Gnabry as, you know, there have been rumors that they're on thin ice, but that might not necessarily be the case according to what SportBuild reported this week. Uh, while, yes, the team is is – not necessarily considering either player untouchable. They are also not outwardly looking to get rid of either player. So this is a situation, at least according to the reports, where it appears that the club and the players are going to meet after the season. They're going to have to figure out what the outlook is moving forward for the 2023-24 season. You know, if Leroy Sané and Serge Gnabry are not starting 11-level players at that point, if Nagelsmann is permanently shifting to a back three and that's going to limit some of the positional options for those players, it's not out of the realm of possibility that we could see Sané or Gnabry looking to move on. It doesn't mean it will happen, but if you look at the reports and, you know, you believe what those reports are indicating – the discussion will at least be there with the players. And it looks like it will be a mutual type decision that will be worked out with both Sané and Gnabry. Uh, to me, I like both players. And, you know, of course, like anybody else, I'm going to be critical of certain players at certain times. And you'd be hard pressed to find a player who I haven't been critical of on the Bayern Munich roster at some point. 
they're all going to have ups. They're all going to have downs. When you're talking and writing about them daily, like we do, um, you're going to assess them daily. So there's always going to be, you know, uh, an instantaneous reaction to how a player performs or what their form has been like over the course of a certain time period. So while it sometimes might seem like people at BFW or even myself are, are critical or overcritical of players, it's not necessarily the case. Um, and it doesn't mean that you don't like them as players or people or anything like that. I think Sané had a bit of a bad rap when he came to Bayern Munich. I mean, most people were enamored with his talent and what he potentially could do. Uh, others, you know, you, you hear the stories about him being a diva or being selfish and those kind of things. And it, maybe it taints what you picture for that player. But I think since he's come here, he's proven a lot of things and that he's a team player is really at the forefront of what he's been able to prove since coming to the squad. Uh, Gnabry, I think, has been really a model citizen uh, since he's come over. He's worked hard. He has performed at various points. You could really argue that the problem with both Sané and Gnabry is consistency. Uh, you know, they are also players who who have had bouts with different injuries in the past, but not to the level of someone like Kingsley Coman. But either way, uh, Sané and Gnabry, they're, they're good players. It's surely, to me, just a matter of how they fit into Nagelsmann's vision for the squad moving forward. I think Gnabry, more than Sané, is likely to leave just because Gnabry has really shown a reluctance to play wing back. Those striker and attacking midfielder positions are so stacked at this point, it's tough to break into those. Uh, I think Sané has excelled a little more than Gnabry has when he's played centrally. So I think his transition to being an attacking midfielder is not necessarily as steep as Gnabry's might be, even though Gnabry probably has a, a uh, more extensive history in playing in a central role. But either way, those are two players that Byron's going to meet with after the season and try and figure out what they'll do moving forward. On the flip side of that news was the good news that Byron appears to be very close to contract extensions with both Alfonso Davies and Luca Hernandez. Now, I definitely have been someone who has been on the doubting side that Byron is going to be able to retain all of this talent. Uh, when it comes to Luca Hernandez, I think one of the great things that you can say about Byron is they are engaging Hernandez at a point when he is maybe at his lowest in his career in terms of injury wise. Now the great news for him is he can't, he's back on the field running, which to me is crazy. He just tours ACL in November and he's already back on the field running. Um, I don't think he's close to coming back in terms of playing, but it's great to see him out on the field, but either way, Byron has put really put forth a good faith effort to negotiate with him and show him that, you know, the club is sticking by him and they're going to offer him options to continue on with the club, which I'm sure he appreciates. Had Hernandez not gotten hurt, I think he would have definitely started to draw big money offers from some other clubs. Because at that point, Hernandez was, I mean, it would be hard to argue that he wasn't Bayern Munich's best defender in the Hinrunda. Uh, and he was certainly positioning himself to uh, really have a bidding war for his services because he was that good. And as a center back, despite the fact that he doesn't have that prototypical size, he does have excellent foot speed. He does have an excellent burst. He does have the versatility to play left back pretty seamlessly. So Byron recognizing that 
and and knowing that you know coming off an ACL, there's no guarantee he's going to have any of those traits. Uh, it's not to say he still won't be fast, but will he be able to to burst out like he used to? I, I don't know. But Byron's making that good faith effort to negotiate with him, show him a future, and I think Hernandez appreciates that, and I think that will ultimately get the deal done. Um, at a time where a lot of clubs would would be hesitant to negotiate with you, where they would take a wait and see approach, Byron is diving in head first, and that's rightly or wrongly. I mean, there are I would get the train of thought of some folks that would say, well, it's it's not a smart way to operate. You don't know what Hernandez might look like when he comes back. Byron's making a calculated guess right now on on the fact that even if Hernandez does not gain his top level speed, if he does not have that same exceptional burst, he's still going to have that positional awareness and that feistiness and be fast enough that as an undersized center back, he'll still be able to make a big impact and be a, a really frontline player. So uh, I think it's a, it's a good thing for Byron Munich with Hernandez. And I'm sure that Hernandez... Uh, at a time where he needed clubs to believe in him, appreciates that Bayern Munich does. As for Davies, it's a little more interesting because he he has really started to turn his season around. There were there really was a time a couple of weeks back where he just didn't look like himself. Positionally, he was a mess. He was making a lot of mistakes on the ball. And listen, he's never been this, you know, perfect player on the ball. He has a tendency to turn it over, but he usually has those turnovers in attacking scenarios. He was starting to make mistakes in his own end in the middle of the field, and they were really starting to put Byron in some very difficult situations. He has seemingly turned that around. He's looked a lot better. Uh, but all that said, with Davies, I think it comes down to what he wants out of this next step of his career. If he truly does want to be with Bayern Munich, there's no reason to think the two sides won't get a deal done. But if he has an inkling that he might want to attempt at going to the Premier League or that he might want to take a role at, at Real Madrid, if he has any thought that those are things he might want to pursue, those opportunities are certainly going to be there. I don't think Bayern Munich wants to let him even get the thought into his head. I think they want to try and lock him up and get a deal done. Uh Listen, for Davies, I could see both perspectives here. It's a great thing to be at one club and embrace the community, embrace your status as a potential legendary player at the club. And I think that that is very appealing to a player like him. I also get that he might want to look to try and do things a little bit differently, try a different environment, challenge himself in another country. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. The good thing for Davies is that he's still young. He could take another contract at Bayern and still be toward the tail end of his prime uh, when his deal runs out, which would allow him to then make that jump. So, you know, my initial timeline for Davies was I thought he would really start to explore these options that he had in the Premier League or with Real Madrid after this season. But I think now my thought process has evolved to the point where I think he's going to accept another contract with Bayern Munich and that this could be his last contract with the club. And like, that's not to predict he's going to leave, but I think that at that point he will have spent a significant chunk of his playing career in Germany and he will start to get the itch to try his shot at England or with Real Madrid or Barca in La Liga. So 
it's good news, Byron. It seems like it's going to be able to get deals done for Davies and Hernandez. And we'll also be able to talk openly with Sané and Gnabry about what might be next for them. Finally, the last thing, Byron-related thing that we'll talk about is uh, Jao Cancelo and what is going on with him. So he went from coming in as a loney from Manchester City and, and looking like he was going to jump right into a starting role to now sort of being an afterthought. And there are a couple of reasons, I think, for that. I think after his first two matches, Cancelo really, um, I don't want to say bottomed out, but he came back to earth a little bit. Uh, some of the problems I'm sure Man City fans saw with him, some of his positioning, some of his awareness, some of his decision-making, those were all some of the problems we saw in his two subsequent appearances after his first two starts. Right now, it's hard to say as a fan that, you know, you would like to give up on Cancelo. But I think from a a club standpoint, I think Cancelo made a lot of sense. They acquired him because they didn't know what was going on with Nusar Mizrahi. They weren't quite sure what Benjamin Pavar's status was. Because if you remember during the break and during the World Cup, Pavar was openly talking about a transfer. There was even, there were even bids for him to come in toward the end of the window it, everything was uncertain with him. And and I think Byron had to really give itself a contingency plan. Josip Stanisic had been on the on the team for a while, but he had never been trusted with a, a fairly large role. So when Byron had the chance to bring in Cancelo for what appears to be a very affordable price in terms of his salary, they hopped at the opportunity. And he came in and made an immediate impact. What that means moving forward is not a whole hell of a lot much. Because I think the amount of money that it would cost to get and keep Cancelo is very prohibitive for what Bayern Munich wants to do and how they would plan their squad. In addition, there are some stories out there that Cancelo is already unhappy, that he's already eyeing a move somewhere else. We know that Real Madrid and Chelsea are both interested in him. And if he truly is unhappy about his playing time and you know he's already griping, which I don't know for sure. I'm just going by what some of the reports have said. It, it would be very disappointing, but you know I, that seems to be what happened at Manchester City earlier this season, where he was not playing as much as he wanted to, started to gripe. This would fit the pattern if it's true. But either way, I don't see Cancelo coming back next season. I don't think Bayern wants to spend the money. So yeah, this appears to be a very short-term con- contingency plan, very much in the form of Alvaro, Alvaro Odriozola, who is a Byron club legend because all he did was win it's kind of it sounds kind of funny to say that having Odriozola and Cancelo in the same sentence because most people would regard Cancelo as a far superior player but I do think Cancelo's role to what Odriozola played is kind of similar he gives a depth option someone that could probably step in and and contribute and do well on short notice but I don't think he has a long-term outlook at the club. And I do think that Byron will let him go back to Man City after this season. And that Kinsella will either work something out at City or he will move on. But either way, I don't think he'll be at Bayern Munich. Maybe I'll be wrong on that. Maybe that will be one of my bad takes at the end of the year. But I'm predicting Bayern Munich will not uh, extend its relationship with Kinsella and that he will move on after the season. Finally, and I'll keep this brief. Uh, I've been hitting on the last of us and a few of us here that, you know, a few of you listeners, a few in the BFW community, we've been going through this last of us journey together. So the most recent episode, I will say 
There were some good parts to it. There were some other parts that really seemed to be going down the Walking Dead road. I guess there are so only so many storylines you can have in a dystopian, you know, post-apocalyptic scenario here. Uh, of course, this is not quite zombies, although they sort of resemble how they act. But either way, uh, as always with The Last of Us, the acting is always very, very good. I'm starting to have major doubts about the storyline. Uh, and there have been doubts over the course of the season uh, in terms of where this is all going and how it wraps up. And I know that there is the video game story and a lot of you have said, be patient. This finale is going to pay off. And that's what I'm waiting for. But I will say that while I do enjoy the show and I do think the actors have been terrific, the storyline itself has not been great. Um, you know, when you dive back into... um flashback episodes so frequently within the first season of a show it's a little concerning it's almost like you're giving away too much of the story already because you don't have enough of a story to tell and that's what concerns me i'm not sure how much of this story is left to tell or where it can go from here so i have at least a little bit of doubt that this is going to pay off in the way that's going to make me like be uber excited about the next season. And that sounds weird to say because I do enjoy the show, but when I compare it to shows that really captured me, like if you want to use the wire or the game of Thrones or the Sopranos, um, Deadwood, all great shows, breaking bad. Some of my favorite shows, they kept me on edge from episode to episode where I could not wait to see what was next. Um, and honestly, I'm not really at that stage with the last of us yet. I enjoy it. I don't feel like I'm wasting my time with it, but I definitely have some skepticism as to where this is going and where it ends up. That said, I have heard a million times now to be patient. This finale is going to pay off and I'm going to do that. So we will recap the finale next week and discuss what we feel about that. But until then, I will say that I'm enjoying it, but I'm also a little skeptical. So, hey, it's kind of how I feel, felt about Bayern Munich at the beginning of the season where I was enjoying things, but I was a little skeptical about how things were going to turn out. Well, it seems like things are going great for Bayern Munich, so maybe it will play out the same for The Last of Us. As always, we appreciate you listening. And it, like I said at the beginning of this episode, if you didn't get a chance to check out the post game, please check out Samron's work on that. Her post game show is really good, uh, but you can get Samron's work and all of our other writers at, at BavarianFootballWorks.com. We have a lot of great posts coming out. Our podcasts are have been really entertaining lately. And I mean, I guess a side of mine. I don't want to really comment on my own, but I always enjoy listening to the work that our other podcasters do. I hope you do as well. So uh, keep hitting our site, getting the latest and greatest Bayern Munich news. And, uh, you know, we appreciate everything. As far as where this podcast is ending up, we're still working on that. We know that there was a February 23rd deadline. We're still working with SB Nation on how this all plays out. But we think things are shifting in a direction where we won't have to do much of an overhaul to anything. But no final details, so no update on that yet. Just stay tuned. Uh, As always, you can get me at the Barrel Blog on Twitter. You can get the site at Bavarian FB Works. You can get our Tweetmeister, Tom Adams, at TommyAdams71. And you can get I Need No Name at BFWINNN. 
Have a great weekend. Have a few beers on me. I am certainly going to kick back with a few. It has been a crazy week, uh, and I am looking forward to relaxing a little bit. Hopefully that happens, but knowing my crazy life, probably not. Either way, have a great weekend, and we will see you next time.